U.S. government wondered if they could use camels as pack animals in the southwestern desert of the United States. In 1857, Lieutenant Edward Fitzgerald Beale, a naval officer in the service of the U.S. Army Corps of Topographical Engineers, is ordered by the War Department to build a government-funded wagon road along the 35th parallel. And the other thing he was supposed to do was test if camels were able to survive and thrive there in the desert in the United States. This road began to expand, and uh, by the 1920s or so, it went from Chicago, Illinois, to Santa Monica, California, kind of in a kind of curvy route uh, 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 to really Los Angeles. And this road became known as U.S. Route 66. In the 1950s, Route 66 became the main vacation highway for uh, vacationers headed to L.A. And the road would pass through the Painted Desert uh, near the Grand Canyon in Arizona. Meteor Crater in Arizona was another popular stop. And there was a sharp increase in tourism because of Route 66. gave rise to all kinds of roadside attractions, some of which were a little odd, and some of them were, became well-known in America. There were teepee-shaped motels, frozen custard stands, Indian uh, curio shops, uh, reptile farms, all kinds of odd things along the way, particularly in the Southwest. And... One of the places it passed before it got to the southwest was St. Louis, uh, Missouri, where uh, the Merrimack Caverns began advertising, on, began advertising on barns and billing themselves as Jesse James's hideout. Uh, there was a place called the Big Texan that advertised a free, guys listen to this, 72-ounce steak dinner to anyone who could consume it in one hour. Also, you can thank Route 66 for the things that, that it birthed uh, uh, today for the fast food industry. Because uh, Red's Giant Hamburg in Springfield, Missouri was the first drive through restaurant. And also, uh, the very first McDonald's in San Bernardino, California was a result of Route 66. Changes like these to the American uh, landscape um, uh, can, be, can be closely linked to what happened in Route 66. As a, and Route 66 really became uh, uh, um, a, a microcosm of crazy America, now linked by the automobile. Well, the beginning of the end for Route 66 came in 1956 with the signing of the Interstate Highway Act by President Dwight Eisenhower. And uh, he was influenced uh, by uh, not only his time as a young officer crossing the country in a truck convoy along the route of the Lincoln uh, Highway and saw the needs for, for, for better roads and, 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 and wider roads, but also during his time in Germany as a five-star general overseeing the Allied forces, he began to appreciate the German Autobahn and the network there uh, and saw that as an important part of not only the civilian life, but also having a network of highways that would um, be uh, appropriate for a national defense system. And so the interstates that we enjoy today, um, as wonderful as they are, uh, also put a 
uh, a nail in the coffin for ideas like Route 66 and more of the things, uh, the, the, the stopping along the ways and sightseeing uh, that we enjoy. Well, I want to tell you this morning that there is a road to glory in our church that has been much neglected and, and, uh, and, and passed by uh, uh, um, in, in American society uh, because it is a road that is not about our comfort. And this road uh, is a road to glory in our church. I think we'll see that in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. But I want to tell you something about this road. is that it is not an easy road. It is not a road of comfort. It is not a road with all kinds of lovely attractions. Uh, but it has been a road that has been misaligned. When I... In 1999, I had the opportunity to travel as a, a youth evangelist uh, with an uh, organization, and we travel in, and put on youth events in about uh, 12 churches across the nation. Um, the further west I was in was Nebraska during that time, uh, and we were in Florida and Georgia and Michigan uh, and a variety of places around the nation. One of the required reading uh, books that we had to do from the organization uh, was a book called The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian, and maybe some of you have read that book. I gleaned a lot of good in it, um, but the, the, the title of the book, The Calvary Road, was a description of the crucified life. And an exposition, really, of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And so it's not about me. It's not about my life. It's the life that I live in Christ now through faith in the Son of God. The Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so this road to glory, the road to the crown here, is a pitted road. It is a Calvary road. I think we'll begin to see that in Romans chapter 15, verse 1 through 7. And this morning, I want you to see this road to glory, this Calvary road, this call to self-crucifixion and living to righteousness, first of all, is a cross-carrying road. It is a Christ-aligning road. It is a Christ-embracing road. And fourthly and finally, it is a Christ-glorifying road. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. The first thing I want us to see this morning is that this Calvary road, the glory in our church, is a cross-carrying road. We then that are strong, Paul identifies with the strong, he says, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now, the things that Paul says and the things that I'm going to say here uh, in the next couple minutes may sound like things that you learned in kindergarten. There was a book that came out uh, a few years ago that said everything I needed to learn about in life, I learned in kindergarten. And, um, uh, and it has a lot of truth in it. But the things you didn't learn in kindergarten are, are more than, than, than just these moral principles. Because Paul has very clearly uh, shown in Romans 6 through 8 that the power to live in the Christian life comes from a life that is rooted in the gospel. It comes from a life that is rooted by the spirit of the gospel. And so it's not just like I try harder, I pull myself up by my bootstraps, I work a little tougher, I dig in a little bit more in my own strength. 
But I want to tell you that the road, the Calvary Road to Glory in our church is a cross-carrying road, which means that self must be crucified and Jesus Christ must be raised and lifted in our lives. It is a cross-carrying road because Paul says, first of all, put others first. Put others first. He says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. And these are really connected to each other. Put others first, put ourselves last. Um, But Paul is building here on what he said in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Have no obligations, Paul says, but have this one obligation. Love one another. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, or thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now you'll notice in verse 2 of Romans chapter 15 that Paul says, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Put others first. That phrase there in verse 1 that says, We then that are strong ought. That ought there is the word that says we are a debtor. We have an obligation, Paul says. We have an obligation to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves, to put others first, and to put ourselves last. Paul here classifies himself with the strong saints because he's dealing with a basic problem. As he's dealing with a basic problem, that problem is selfishness. Do you know that what will destroy a church faster than anything else because of its deep-rooted pride is selfishness? And true Christian love here, Paul is saying, is not selfish. Rather, it seeks to share with others and make others be built up. It's even willing to to carry the younger Christians to help them along in their spiritual development. And Paul says, we ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now that idea of bear, you might think of it just being long-suffering. Like, okay, I'm going to bear with you here, right? But it's more than that. It's the same word that is used in Galatians where Paul talks about uh, uh, bearing one another's burdens. Now when you bear one another's burdens in the body of of, of Jesus Christ, you're not just, okay, they're talking about their problems again, I'm going to bear with it. That's not what bear one another burdens is talking about, is it? It's talking about helping out. Uh, it's talking about putting those people in your prayer, seeing where you can help. And, and, uh, and Paul wants us to understand that if what will destroy a church faster than anything because of its deep-rooted pride is selfishness, and the opposite is true. What will cause a church to last more than anything because of its deep-rooted spirit dependence is God's kind of love. Founded in truth. And so we're to put others first. We're to put ourselves last. We're to surrender our, our, our pleasures. The things that, that we, we think make us happy. And we are thirdly to put ourselves out. And what I mean by that is not to be put out. What I mean by that is to serve other people. Put ourselves out there for other people. We want to say, and we're programmed to say... How can I be most comfortable? That's, how, that's what we're most programmed to say in our families, right? Uh, how can I be most comfortable? 
in our in our lives. Uh, we have a defeat, the default path to, to comfort and ease, don't we? When we should be asking, how can I be most useful to God? Not how can I be most comfortable, how can I be most useful to God? Because look what he says here. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor. Now, all, all us people pleasers, we say, okay, I can do that. I hate conflict, right? But all, let every one of us please his neighbor. Okay. And many times we do things that from the wrong motives just to please people. But notice what Paul says there. There's more to it. He says, please his neighbor for his good to edification. For his good to edification. So we are to, uh, we are to give of ourselves in building up others around us, specifically the weak. We're to bear the weaknesses. Now, that phrase that says, we ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. The infirmities of the weak. Literal translation is, bear the weaknesses of those without strength. If you're the strong, then you are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. And as I mentioned, that bearing there is what Paul uses in Galatians 6. So I'd like you to turn over to Galatians 6 very quickly here. In verse 2... Paul says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. It's different than the law of Moses. We're not under Moses' law. We're free from the law. We're under the rule of grace. Romans chapter 6 says, the rule of grace is what Christ has told us, how Christ has told us to live, and he's given us the power to do so. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul says, for brethren... Ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all this law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. See the contrast there, love versus biting and devouring one another. So there is a there is a there is the, the teaching here in Galatians chapter or Romans chapter fifteen verses verse one and two that we aren't we don't the strong don't need to adopt the scruples of the weak, but we are to refrain from judging and criticizing them and showing love toward them, treating them as the brothers and sisters in Christ that they are, and bearing them up, building them up in Christ. That's why last week we said that uh, the role here of the stronger brother, one of them, is to gently guide. Gently guide. Build them up. Build them up. Don't look down on them. Don't judge. Build them up. The second thing I would like you to see here is that it's not only a Christ-glorifying road. Secondly, it is a Christ-aligning road. Christ-aligning road. Now, this winter... If you went through some of these potholes or some of these dirt roads, you just graded our dirt road here, and so it's a lot smoother than it was. <coughs> um, but you may have gone in the springtime to get a car wheel alignment. Because your, your, your wheels were doing things they weren't supposed to do. And when they're not doing things they're supposed to do, it can wreak havoc on the rest of your car, right? Specifically your tires and the frame. We need a calibration, Paul says. And the calibration in Scripture is not comparing ourselves to one another. The calibration in Scripture is being aligned with Jesus. Because we've been connected with Jesus. We, we have union with Jesus. We're in Christ and He's in us. So he says in verse 3, For even Christ pleased not Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. 
It's a Christ-aligning road. You see, what happened here is that Christ pursued His Father's will for us. And His pursuit of His Father's will was not something that was pleasurable in the physical sense, was it? It was not pleasurable in the emotional sense, was it? There were things that Philippians 2 tells us He set aside. They were part of Him. Uh, he did not use His deity as, as, a, as, as a card to say, Hey, I'm God. You guys should all treat me like this. Though He, should have, or though he could have very easily and would have been rightfully so for Him to do so. But he left heaven's glory. He was not born in a palace. He was born in very humble origins, not even in his own home. He gave himself to be, uh, to be a servant. He humbled himself, Philippians 2 says. And he was obedient in his life, his whole life. And Philippians 2 tells us he was obedient even unto the extent of crucifixion. Even to the extent of death on a cross, Philippians tells us. So Christ pursued His Father's will for us. You remember over and over um, in, in the Gospels when you read the disciples and they're understanding who Jesus is. I think they understand that He's the Messiah. I think it finally dawns on them. But I don't think they understand that He's the Messiah who has to die and suffer. And Jesus has to keep repeating it and telling them. And Peter, remember, he throws up his hands and says, No! Far be it from you. And their idea of the Messiah was the one who would you know, rule and reign and, and free them from their oppressors. But Jesus says, no. He must die, be buried, and be raised again. Christ pursued His Father's will for us. What's interesting here is verse 3 says, But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. He's quoting from Psalm chapter 69. And verse 9. Where the psalmist says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. I'm consumed for the zeal uh, for God's glory in your house. And he says, And the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. Now why does he say that? Well, Psalm 69 is about a righteous man who has been forsaken by his friends and attacked by his enemies while he's pursuing the will of God. He's doing what's right. Because everything should be great for him, right? But he is abandoned by his friends and he is attacked by his enemies, pursuing the will of his father. And Paul takes that verse, and this Psalm 69 is used often in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus. And he says... That that is why Jesus pleased not himself. Christ pursued his Father's will for us. Matthew 8 says he carried our weaknesses. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, or not to be served, but to minister or to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. John 8.29 says, I always do what pleases him. John 4, talking to the woman at the well, Jesus is my, my meat, is to do the will of my Father. So Christ pursued His Father's will for us. That ought to put us in line with Jesus. You see what Jesus did for us? Of all people, Jesus didn't have to do that. He was the Son of God. Yet He served us, carried our weaknesses. Secondly, verse 4, 
says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Second thing is, Christ passed His Father's word to us. He passed His Father's word to us. And uh, Paul includes this verse here because he has just quoted from where? The Old Testament, alright? And so he's showing that this is a a correct application because uh, anything preserved in Scripture is intended to teach us. Intended to teach us about God. Now, not everything in Scripture is to us, but it is for us, is what Paul is saying here. And every bit of it, specifically... The word of the word of God. Luke twenty four twenty seven. Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John five thirty nine. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Second Timothy 3.15 And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in the salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. So anything preserved in scripture is intended to teach us about God, and I think specifically about... Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the Word of God, the revelation of God. But look what Paul says about this. He says, what is over things are written aforetime are written for our learning. Then he says, that we, through patience or endurance, and comfort or encouragement of the Scriptures, might have hope. Might have hope. Do you understand what Paul's saying? He says, using Scripture properly builds real, genuine hope in us. Not like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. But hope that is grounded in the truth. An internal certainty of unseen reality. Faith and hope are very closely linked together. Faith is that certainty of something that is unseen, right? Now, how does Scripture build hope in us? Look at look what he says here. Through patience, first of all. Alright, so through endurance. What does Paul mean by that? Endurance means obeying the commands of God, of Jesus, of what's been written to us. Obeying the commands of God. That implies hard work, doesn't it? Christian life isn't easy. That implies discipline, doesn't it? That implies spiritual exercise. Paul says... And, and uh, Timothy, to Timothy, he says, bodily exercise profits little. It profits a little, is what he's saying. But godly exercise is profitable for all things. He says, there's a little, there's little, there's a little bit of profit in bodily exercise. But there is great profit in spiritual exercise. And the word he uses is the word of gymnasium, sweat. It's hard work. So, learn, looking in Romans 15.4, that we might, through endurance and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. But that second part, he says, through endurance, or patience, and he says, and through comfort, or encouragement is the word there, uh, 
encouragement. Through the precious promises of God, you can endure. Through what God has promised, you can endure. You can work. You can, uh, you, you're relying on His promises for their spiritual exercise. And look at the, look at the, the result here. It produces hope. Produces hope. You might have hope. You need the promises of God of eternal rewards to live the Calvary Road and this kind of a life where you're putting yourself behind others. So Jesus Christ passes His Father's word onto us as a means of grace to accomplish this a task of the Calvary Road to glory. Third thing I want you to see this morning is that it is a Christ-embracing road. A Christ-embracing road. Now Paul is going to add another portion, another piece of God's power and grace, and he's going to pray. He's going to pray. In verse 5, he says, Now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. The God of patience or endurance. The God of consolation, encouragement. That He grants you to be like-minded one toward another in Christ Jesus. So, this like-mindedness is is the idea of harmony. Harmony. Um, You know, if you like barbershop quartet, you appreciate harmony. How different voices are blending. Okay? If they all sang the same, uh, if they all sang the melody, it would be kind of boring. All right, but that harmony there uh, with the melody uh, 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 adds another layer to it. You can appreciate the differences and yet see the unity there. And so Paul's saying, um, if you need harmony, then uh, you got to accept His grace. You got to accept His grace. Now, where is that in this verse? Well, look what he says: the God of patience and consolation grant you, grant you. Give this to you. Grant you to be like-minded one toward another. In other words, he's putting out a gift for us. It's a supernatural gift. Being like-minded doesn't come naturally with a bunch of different ages of people, different backgrounds of people, different uh, economic levels, different ways of being raised. That doesn't come naturally. This is something that's been granted by God, a gift of His God. We need to accept His grace in this. But also, look what he says here. It means abiding in His goodness. Look how he describes God. The God of endurance or patience. The God of consolation or comfort. That's a good God, isn't it? That's a God who's given resources here. It means abiding in His goodness. Listen. When we are abiding in Christ, there are some byproducts that are going to result. You know, when you, when you have a tuning fork and you strike that tuning fork and every, all the uh, instruments uh, uh, align themselves to the, the pitch of that tuning fork, all right, they're going to be in line with each other as well, naturally. If you have a bicycle wheel and, you're, and, and, and uh, you take your fingers on the edge of the bicycle wheel and you follow the spoke, where is the spoke going to end up? Where are they going to meet? In the center, right? Jesus is the center, Okay? God is the center. Abiding in Christ, abiding in Jesus, uh, will bring us uh, like-mindedness. So it's a Christ-embracing road. Fourthly and finally, it is a Christ-glorifying road. 
a Christ-glorifying room. Verse 6, here's what the Holy Spirit wants to see accomplished in His church. Verse 6 and 7. That ye may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Very interesting here. He says, first of all, with one mind and one mouth, glorify God. Okay? He's talking about our worship. That our worship together displays His glory. A worship of people from... from uh, uh, when, you, when you study the, the throne room scenes in Revelation, you see all kinds of diversity and one thing on their lips. Praising God for His mercy to them. For the Gospel. That displays His glory. That displays His glory. Now... <clears throat> There's a second thing that displays His glory. He says in verse 7, Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, we heard something like that before in this passage. We have, if you look in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye. It's the same word. And remember, I spent a, a little bit of time explaining that word is to welcome openly, embrace. And then in verse 3 of chapter 14, Let him that eateth despise him that eateth, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, let him not, let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Don't judge the one that God has welcomed through his grace into the gospel. What's interesting is in chapter 15, verse 7, look how Paul says it. He says, same thing, receive one another. But he also says, here's the promise, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. You might not have noticed that subtle change, but in chapter 14 it says, receive them because God has received them. Here he says, receive them because God has received you. Why is that important? Well, it is only as we understand and comprehend and work at, at, uh, at believing that we have been graciously accepted by God because of our faith in His work. And not our own. That Paul says our right response will follow that. When we feel like we have something still to prove to God and we're trying to manage our perfection, you know what that leads to? It leads to a critical spirit because I'm having to compare myself to other people. It leads to disputes and breakouts. And so Paul says, and when he's saying in verse 7 there, as Christ also received us to the glory of God, he's saying, plunge into the grace of the gospel that God has accepted me, you, without it. Differences of opinions and practices and flaws of others are going to scream loud at us. It's going to get irritating. It's going to happen. But the gentle, soothing voice of grace that says, In me, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased because of my eternal Son, lubricates. Now, Paul here wants there to be unity in the church, doesn't he? He wants the strong to bear the weaknesses of the weak. But he does not. But what is the end game here? He doesn't want 
The strong bearing the weak just for the sake of the strong bearing the weak. He doesn't even want unity just for the sake of unity, does he? What does he want? These exist for the sake of the glory of God's hallowed name in this earth. Look what he says in verse 7. Well, verse 6, excuse me. That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That is the issue here. The glory of God in His church. That is the issue. And remember, uh, in, in Psalm 69, uh, that verse that was quoted, Paul um, quotes the half of the verse there, where the reproaches, or the other reproach that he fell on me. The first part of that was, The zeal of your house has eaten me up, has consumed me. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 that God desires His church to be the laboratory to a watching world of God's goodness and wisdom and grace. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 Paul says, to the intent or reason that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church, or that the church might make these things known, the manifold wisdom of God. You know why God has formed His church? To display the world His wisdom. The wisdom of what? The wisdom of what the world calls foolishness. That by the preaching of the cross, God brings people with differences together through the gospel. That's foolishness to the world. That's God's wisdom. But go further. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we close. First Peter 4, verse 7, Peter says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity or love among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister or serve the same one to another. Listen, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. What Peter is saying is what Paul has said here. The church is like a prism. And God's grace is like that light shining on a prism. A glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shining through the church. And as that light hits that prism, it's displayed in red and orange and yellow and green and blue and indigo and violet. Science teacher will be proud of me there. Remember those names? Um, but it's displayed in, in, a, in a spectrum. A spectrum. Different gifts. Different abilities. But for what? To display the manifold. That's the idea of multifaceted grace of God. That's why God has formed His church. And that is what He desires 
to see accomplished. And that happens as we understand that there is a cross before the crown. In order for the glory to be displayed in His church, the glory that Jesus prayed for in John 17 that He shared with His Father, He wants to share with us, there must be a life, a self-life that is crucified and a life that lives to righteousness for the building up of His church. So it is. Our welcoming together of one another displays His glory. Because we were welcomed in Christ. This one who brought us into His fold and holds us fast is not just a cognitive truth in our brains, but it's to be lived out among us. And when it isn't, we've forgotten that we've been purged from our old sins, Peter says. You and I exist together to display the glory of God. That's it. We're imagers of God's glory. And we will only display the glory of God when we understand the glory of His grace for us. And we will only bear up the infirmities of the weak when we understand God's grace. And we will only not please ourselves and please others for their good, for edification, when we get that.